We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. It's good to see you here this morning. If we haven't met, my name is Patrick and I'm one of the pastoral candidates here. And if you're new to the church, we just want to say welcome. Thanks so much for being here with us. Uh, if you'd like to know more about our church, we have a little connect table out in the lobby. After the service, you can learn more about how you can get plugged in. I'll be up front. Love to talk to you more about the Jesus we serve and how we could even serve you more. So just welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Um, I have the joy and privilege this morning to introduce our new series on the book of Acts. But before I get there, I want to just do a, run through a few quick announcements. First, just a reminder that our Emmaus Institute is beginning, uh, which is our kind of big umbrella plan for discipleship here at our church, and that's for everyone. So two dates to keep in mind uh, regarding the Emmaus Institute. Number one, today. Today is the last day to sign up for cohorts, so if you want to sign up for a smaller cohort, uh, kind of a discipleship group, please get online, contact Joseph Lanier, and sign up for that. So again, today is the last date to sign up for that. Secondly, uh, January 24th is when we start our classes during the first service, I think, in the other theater. So just keep that in mind, January 24th. We'd love to see a lot of people there. Uh, Andrew King, if I believe I'm right, is going through Hosea, and so we'd love to see you there. Uh, it's an eight-week class. January 24th is when it begins. Second announcement. I just want to remind you we have opportunities to serve evacuees from Afghanistan, and so if you want to help out with that, um, we need more help, so contact Ellen Tanner for that. We'd love to see more people helping out with that as well. And then third, I just actually wanted to ask Ashlyn Stone to come up and tell you a little bit more about some updates and some new things going on in the kids' ministry. Just a quick update. Um, for Emmaus Kids, we are starting today in the Gospel Project. It's um, a series, a curriculum that focuses on how the Bible uh, goes from start to finish, and it's all about Christ and uh, how God has a plan to save his people. Um, so that's starting today, and what that means for our volunteers is that you will have constant access online to the curriculum, so you can be looking at that through the weeks and feel a little bit more prepared for Sunday morning when you get to be with the kids. And then for families, what that means is that there's always going to be um, resources online that kind of point back to what we're talking about on Sunday. So that can look like just rereading the story that your kids were looking at on Sunday, or it can look like an entire family worship time. Um, so those resources are going to be sent to you in a link this week in your Emmaus announcements email. We do still need a lot more volunteers for Emmaus Kids. Um, in order for us to just have volunteers serving once a month, we need about 80 people. Right now we have about 55. So there's a little bit of a gap there that we would really love to fill. Um, so if you are not serving yet, keep, keep that in mind. We also are not currently meeting with our third through fifth graders. So if that's a passion of yours, talk to us because um, we would love to have a meeting time for them, even if it's just once or twice a month. That would be really special for for those third through fifth graders. Current volunteers, we are so thankful for you. Don't hear me um, just beg for more. Hear us say that we so appreciate all that you have done and all that you are doing, um, all, all of your uh, time spent 
with our kids. You are caring for our church by caring for our kids. And um, we're praying for you as you um, are sharing the gospel with them each week. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Ashlyn. Appreciate it. As I mentioned, we are kicking off our series on Acts, so we're going to be looking at um, Acts 1-8. I'm supposed to cover the whole book, but I'm just looking at one verse. That's a kind of a typical preacher move, right? Cover the whole book. I'll just look at one verse. So Acts 1-8 actually does give us a nice little summary of the book. So if you want to turn there, but uh, as we begin, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you uh, for this time that we can have together, and we do pray that your spirit would come, that your spirit would give us power, that your spirit would enliven us, that your spirit would um, compel us to be witnesses for Christ. Uh, thank you that you have spoken to us in your word, and we pray that the word would sink deep within us and change our hearts and change our lives, and that ultimately we would look to Jesus again and see him as beautiful and glorious and worthy of all affection. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when you think of the church, what do you think of? When I say the word church, what do you think of? Maybe you think of it as a building or a movie theater with amazing chairs where you come and worship together. Maybe you think of it as a community where you interact with friends. You get to see one another again each week and catch up and say hi to one another. Maybe you think of it as an event. It's an event more you watch. You're not really participating as much. You're just watching other people do things, sing up here, preach up here. So you're more just witnessing what's going on. Maybe you think of it as an institution, an institution through the history that has done both good and harm in society. Or maybe you think of kind of classic definitions of the church, one Catholic, holy, apostolic church, the people of God, this is what the church is. When we think of the church, it's easy, easy for us to think about what it is and neglect what it is called to do. What is the church called to do? According to Acts, according to the book of Acts, God's people have an assignment. We have a mission. We have a duty. We have a task in front of us. As we have named this series, we are a community on mission. We are a community on mission. So this morning, we're going to look at Acts as a whole through this one verse. Acts tells the story of what happened after Jesus left. The whole Bible has been leading up to Jesus. And finally, he comes. In the Gospels, we meet him. And we see his love and his care for people as he goes around healing and teaching and explaining the kingdom of God. And then he goes to a Roman cross and he dies and the disciples are confused and they don't know what to think. And then he's raised from the dead. And the disciples are like, the kingdom's here. We're ready. We're ready, Jesus. And that's what they say in Acts 1.6. They say, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? You've been raised from the dead. You died. Let's... Let's go. Let's do this. And Jesus says, no, there's something to do in the meantime. And actually, in the meantime, I'm going to leave, and I'm going to leave you here, but there's a task to be done. I, I call you on mission, which should cause us to ask the question, what is our mission? What are we called to do? What are we supposed to do with the other 10,000 minutes we have in the week when we only spend 90 of those minutes here on Sunday morning? What are we supposed to do with that time? Acts recounts how God has called his church to participate in his mission. And this morning, I simply want to encourage you to participate in what God is doing in this world. And we can see that 
by walking through just one verse which details our mission. This is Jesus' words to the apostles before he ascends. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And this is what it says. It says to Jesus, to his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So this is really the table of contents for the book of Acts. And actually behind you, we're going to throw up an outline that we're going to leave up the whole time. I'm not going to explain it. You can just kind of look at it when you get bored with what I'm saying and look at the images. Uh, but this really gives the outline for all of Acts. So you can even see Jerusalem 1 through 7, Judea and Samaria 8 through 12. Hopefully you can see that. I can see it. I'm pretty close to it. Ends of the earth 13 through 28. Okay, so that's the outline. Uh, but today I want to look at Acts 1-8 and focus on three kind of simple points from Acts 1-8. First, we will see what we are called to do as God's people. Second, we will see how we accomplish it. And third, we will see where we are to go. So very simple, what we are to do, how we are to accomplish it, and third, where we are to go. First, the what. What are we to be doing? Why are we left here on this earth? What, are, what does Jesus call his followers to do? What is our mission? Our task is identified and encapsulated in one term, to be witnesses, to be witnesses. That is what we see in Acts, the apostles going throughout all these regions, being witnesses to Jesus. And you might wonder, what does that term mean, to witness to Jesus? Well, we still use the term in English in a legal and religious sense. In a legal sense, if you are a witness to a crime, you might go before a courtroom and testify, that's the verbal form of witness, testify to what you have seen. In the religious sense, we still, if you're in church, we still sometimes use it in terms of witnessing to Jesus. We are witnesses for Jesus. We witness to Jesus. So to witness simply means to see of something and to tell of it. To see of something and to tell of it. In the words of the angsty rock band I listened to in Rage Against the Machine, we testify, we testify, right? We testify. Now, what does this look like in the book of Acts? What's great about Acts is as we go through it, you're going to see that they testify in many different ways. And actually, much of the book is composed of sermons. So we're going to see lots of long sermons where they're testifying, they're witnessing to Jesus Christ. But there's a few key summaries that we can actually go to where it gives us a, a little snapshot of how they witness. So if you have a Bible, chapter 1, verse 22, Acts 1, 22. This is when Peter and the apostles are trying to figure out how to, how to replace Judas. They need a 12th disciple, a 12th apostle. And they say in 122, it is necessary that one become, and here's our key word, a witness with us of Jesus' resurrection. There's a nice little summary, isn't it? We witness to Jesus' resurrection. And, and 2.32, again, Acts 2.32, if you want to turn there really quick. This is after the Spirit has come at Pentecost. Peter is in the middle of preaching his Pentecost sermon. And Peter says in 2.32, God has raised this Jesus. Resurrection. We are all witnesses of this. In Acts... To be a witness is to see and tell of the Christ event. 
That includes his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. But in Acts, there is a particular focus upon the resurrection and ascension of Christ. Our task here, while we are left here on the earth, is to tell others of the God who raises the dead. The God who raises the dead. And we don't only do that with our words, but we actually do that with our actions as well. You can see that in Acts 3. Peter goes towards the temple. Peter and John goes towards the temple, and they meet a layman outside of the temple. And the layman looks at them, and he's never walked, and he says to them, do you have any money? And Peter looks at him, and he says, I have no money, but I have something else for you. I have the power of Jesus. And he raises him up, and the man walks. And notice, the, actually, the word even that's used there is he raises him up. It's a resurrection scene. So we witness by both our words and our actions, our mouths and our hands and our feet. But why this focus on the resurrection? Why this focus on the resurrection? Why do we witness to the resurrection? Because, this is key, the mission of God is to bring healing and renewal to all creation, and we are called to participate in what God is doing in the world. That's a big statement for this kind of whole series, for this whole sermon. The mission of God is to bring healing and renewal to all creation, and we are called to participate in what God is doing in this world, and it begins with Jesus' resurrection. So we tell others about that. And this brings up a really important point. Mission does not start with us. Mission does not start with us. It starts with what God is doing in this world. It's very easy for us to get this mission talk backwards, where we begin with what we are called to do. No, we are witnessing to what God has done and what God is doing and what God will do in this world. We get to participate and join in what God is doing in this world. And I, this is actually very important for us to get right. Because there are two sermons, two sermons especially, that can put heavy guilt trips upon people. You know what two sermons those are? Sermons on prayer and evangelism. Sermons on prayer and evangelism are typically the sermons that most people walk out and feel like, I'm a terrible Christian. <laughs> I'm a terrible Christian. I could ask you, when was the last time you shared your faith? And maybe most of us, including myself, might put our head down in shame and think, oh, I, want, I want to do this. Why am I not doing this more? And add to this that we are the most task, achievement, I'm going to fix it, activist generation. We think we're going to fix this city by moving there. We're going to fix this church by going there. We're going to fix this planet by recycling that soda can or using that paper straw or whatever it might be. And the church sometimes just seems to pile on with the message of try harder, do more, be better. And the performance treadmill just keeps running, and we're all falling off the end of it. But aren't you utterly exhausted? That sometimes it feels like we're just called to do more and more and more, and we're just tired. We're just tired. Well, the good news is the gospel reminds us you're not saved by witnessing. You're saved by Jesus. You're not saved by witnessing. You're saved by Jesus. And secondly... The truth that this is God's mission first actually frees us to join him without weighing us down. Our church could drop dead 
our denomination could become nothing. The American church could be non-existent and God would still make a great name for himself. Malachi 1.11 says, from the rising of the sun to its setting, God's name will be great among the nations. It will be great among the nations, no matter what. So God doesn't need us in his mission. God is not a needy God, but he loves us enough to allow us to participate in what he's doing in this world, to heal and to restore. We are not called to save the world. We are called to serve the world. Jesus saves the world, and we witness to him. And I think this actually gives us energy and opportunity to look for ways in which God is prodding us to alert other peoples to God's reign in this world. And if you, and if you have experienced God's love, his grace, his kindness, his forgiveness, his healing in your life, don't, don't you want to tell others about this? That he wants to spread this message to all people from all nations? This message is beautiful. It's captivating. We really need to recover the good news, the good in our good news. We have good news, and we must recover that. God is on a restoration mission in this world, and this project is kick-started with Jesus' resurrection. And so we witness to that. We tell others about that. That should compel us. It should weigh us down. I don't want you to leave here feeling, oh, I feel so guilty. No, be excited because we get to tell other about, others about Jesus' resurrection. That is good. As the scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet that spread good news. Second, we not only see what we are to do to be witnesses, but how we are to do so. Acts 1.8 says, you will receive power from the Holy Spirit when he comes upon you. Appropriately, Jesus points to the helper that the apostles and therefore we will have in this task. And we are going to need this helper. We can't do this on our own. Though we have a message of life, though we have a message that God raises people from the dead, people will interpret it as a message of death. They will. And we see that through the book of Acts. Acts is filled. You would think, oh, this is great. Acts is going to be filled with all these people rising up and the church growing. Yes, that's there. But guess what's also filled with? Persecution. People are thrown into jail. People hate them. People are expelled from cities. Paul is stoned. People are killed. Paul is left in prison at the end. They will interpret this as a message of death. So we need help. And we have the help of what? The third person of the Trinity. It's so easy to forget that we have the Godhead here to help us in the person of the Spirit. In Acts 2, this is so important. In Acts 2, we'll get to this. But at Pentecost, the Spirit comes down as wind and fire upon the people. And that fire rests above their heads. Why does Luke use that imagery? He could have just said the Spirit came, but he says, no, it comes down as wind and fire. Because that makes us think back to Sinai. When God came down as wind and fire, and remember what happened there. He said to Moses, you and a few other people can come up. But if anyone else touches that mountain, they die. They must stay off that mountain. 
And just think, now that wind and that fire is ours. It resides within us. And, it, and the Spirit empowers us to go and speak of Jesus' resurrection. The Spirit enables us and gives us great boldness to speak of this. In Acts 4-7, after Peter has healed the lame man, the leaders ask, by what power or in what name did you do this? Why did you raise him up? Why can he walk now? You shouldn't be doing that. And, and think of that language. By what power and what name? By the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus. That's how I did it. And that's exactly what Peter will say. He'll say, you think I did this? Jesus has come. He's been raised from dead. And he's spreading that resurrection to all people. And then in 4.13, when they observed the boldness of Peter and John, and they realized they were uneducated and untrained men. These guys don't know what they're doing. But then they recognize something. These men had walked with Jesus. So they have boldness because the Spirit is upon them. And then in Acts 6.8, it says Stephen was full of grace and of power. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. And so what did he do? He was performing great wonders and signs among the people. He was spreading resurrection life. And now the question always arises, well, why does it look like that in Acts? And why doesn't it look like it now? What's going on? Wow, it's amazing what they're doing, but... What we're doing looks a little not like that. So what's going on? And we might be tempted to think, well, they were apostles. That was back then. This is now. It's totally different. But I'm not going to answer all your questions right now. But we reside in the same era. We have the same spirit and we have the same message. That Christ has been raised from the dead and he is spreading that resurrection life to others. Pentecost is not repeatable but it is also not retractable. We live in the days of the Spirit. And that is so important because we spread that same message. So what, what does that mean for us? Well, because we have the Spirit empowering, empowering us, it means that we can also be bold in spreading this message, this resurrection message. Tim Keller notes that the Spirit gives us boldness because the Spirit reminds us of the truth of the gospel. The Spirit reminds us of the truth of the gospel. And how does he do that? Well, a true understanding of the gospel takes away three things in our witness. And I found this so helpful from Keller, so I'm just going to repeat it here, okay? Three things in our witness. Pride, fear, and pessimism. It takes away pride, fear, and pessimism. These three things are often what causes us to be ineffective or not share at all. So first, the gospel, the Spirit, by coming and bringing the gospel near us, it takes away pride. One of the main reasons, one of the main reasons we are not effective in sharing our faith is because there is a pride, a smugness, an abrasiveness to our message. We wouldn't say this out loud, but too often we think we are better or smarter than the person that we are talking to for knowing this truth, for possessing this truth. So again, we wouldn't say that, but I've got something and you need it. But the gospel reminds us we're saved by grace. We're saved by grace. We aren't better. We're not smarter. In fact, if we're saved by grace, we should assume the person we're talking to is better and smarter than us. They might be a better wife, husband, mother, worker. They might be kinder. They might be wiser than us. They might be smarter than us. Whatever it is, we should assume that because we're saved by grace. And this should give us a deference and respect for others. 
We are all in need of grace. We're not better than anyone. We actually recognize as Christians, our first confession is we need help. We need help. And so that takes away all pride in sharing the gospel. All pride. I think in this age, we're hesitant to speak of Christ because we don't want to come off as indicating we are superior. And guess what? We're not. We're not superior. That's exactly the point of the gospel. We need grace. The gospel takes away all pride. Second, the spirit reminds us that the gospel takes away fear. Many times, we don't speak of Christ and his resurrection because we don't want to be disliked. We don't want to be viewed as that religious fanatic who's always doing that thing. We don't want to lose our reputation. We don't want to lose our job. We don't want to lose our friends. But when the Spirit comes and dwells within us, he reminds us of the gospel. And the gospel tells us you are completely loved, completely accepted, completely forgiven, and fully pleasing to God. And if those things are really true in your life, you should have no fear. Because they might hate you. They might reject your message. They might not like what you're saying. But you're completely accepted. You're completely forgiven. You, have, you should have no fear because you're already fully accepted it to God himself. So it takes away all fear. Third, the spirit empowers us by taking away pessimism. We might think, well, I'd love to talk to that person about it, but they'll never listen. They'll never listen. That, and what are we saying? And I've thought this myself, okay? That isn't the type of person who wants to hear this, right? But do you understand what we're saying when we think that? I might be the type of person who wants to hear that, but they're not. But the gospel reminds us that every conversion is a miracle, and there's no type of person for Christianity. There's no type of person. The gospel is for all and even more than that, we will see in Acts that God loves to work in the most unexpected places and in the most unexpected persons. I actually would argue that that person, you're like, oh, I feel the spirit compelling me to talk to them, but I just feel like they won't like it. That's exactly where God wants to work because he wants to surprise you. Acts is filled with surprises like, oh my gosh, that person saved that, that person, that person, because then it's not about you, it's about him. And you can see God's power, right? Second Corinthians, God's power in our weakness. God's power in our weakness. In college, I was involved with what was called Campus Crusade for Christ Crew, it's called now. And they have kind of a method for evangelism. This is where I was taught how, how to share my faith. I'm very thankful for them. But the method was, I was being discipled by someone, and we'd go out into like the cafeteria of the college, and we'd sit down with people and try to share our faith. And what would typically happen was... Um, the person who was discipling me, would we'd go out about five times, and I'd watch him do it. And then the roles would reverse, right, where I had to do it. So I would watch, and we'd talk about it afterwards. We, we'd say, okay, what went well, what, what didn't go well, how did we communicate, um, so, so forth and so on. So I was um, leading a Bible study, and I was using that same method. I would go out and share with people, and I'd have them watch me. And um, it came time for us to switch. So I was taking this guy out. He'd never shared his faith in his life. He had been a Christian his whole life, but he'd never done this. He was so nervous, so it's time. So we did the kind of Christian thing of playing some bait and switch thing, right, where it's like, hey, you want to talk to us about this? Just kidding, we're talking about Jesus. And um, trying to make it not awkward, but it even made it more awkward. So I'm sitting there, and I'm just kind of watching as he's like 
going through this gospel presentation. And to be completely honest, it was a wreck. Like, I was like, this is like needs to be on like some Saturday Night Live show, right? Like, this is, this is exactly what people think when other Christians share their faith with them. Like, it was not coherent. It was nothing. He could barely get through the conversation. He was shaking, like his hands were shaking as he was like holding this thing. And I'm like, oh my goodness, we have a lot of work to do. But it was his first time. It's okay. It's okay. So he comes to the end and he's like, so do you want to follow Jesus? And I'm like, I don't even think that was clear. Like, I don't even know if he knows what he wants to do here, right? And the guy looks back at him. He goes, yeah, I actually do. And I have had like no success in college, honestly. Like, no, everyone's like, yeah, that's nice for you. That's great. See you later. And I'm sitting there like, okay, so I wasn't trained on the next step after this. But I was just shocked. And I use this story not because it was the best way of doing this. No, actually, I don't know if it was the best way of doing this. But because it's an example that the power is not in us. The power is not in us. It's in God and the spirit who enlivens and clarifies this message. You don't have to be an expert. You don't have to be trained to do this. This is for everyone. He, the spirit, makes your words come to life. He enters people's hearts and changes them dis despite what you're doing. So when you feel weak, when you feel you don't have the words to say, when you feel like you don't know enough, call out to the spirit of God. Wind and fire is amongst you. He's with you. He's your helper. So we've seen the what, we're witnesses. The how, how do we do this? By the power of the spirit. Now we see the where. Where do we go? Well, we go, the apostles go, according to Jesus in Acts 1.8, to Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. In summary, this is near and far. This is near and far. This is everywhere. And this really, it gives the outline for the book of Acts. We see the apostles going about witnessing by the spirit, to all of these re regions. And for the original hearers, Jerusalem was close to home. It was where the temple was. It was where the Jewish people, not all of them, but largely resided. And then Judea and Samaria just expanded out slightly. That was still the region, the land of Israel. And the ends of the earth meant the places that they had never been before. The point is, God wants everyone to be included in his plan of renewal and healing. Everyone. He wants everyone, both near and far. He wants his church to look as diverse as the world. This is what we see in Acts. We see Philip going to Samaritan. Samaritans are known as half-breeds to Jews. They did not associate with them. They would rather than travel through their land, go around it and take all this other time. And Philip goes to Samaritans and they accept and they're welcomed into the church. And we see Peter go to Cornelius the Roman centurion, the enemies of Israel. And Peter, the spirit falls on Cornelius and his household, and they are coming to the church. And we see in Antioch, people from all these different regions. It was this multicultural place in Acts 11. And the church is birthed there, and they have this amazing, diverse leadership. And then we see Paul being sent out to the nations. He goes to the cities. He brings the message to the city of philosophers, Athens, where Socrates was sometimes. And Philosophers come to faith, and they're welcomed in. And then we see him go to the city of magic, Ephesus, where they'd worship all these other gods. And all these people who are magicians take all their stuff and burn it in a massive fire and say, we want to follow Jesus too. And they're welcomed into the community. And then he goes to barbarians, and they're not known for being cultured at all. 
and he shares the good news with them, and they're welcomed into the church. And then he goes to Rome, to the heart of the empire, and Luke doesn't even tell us if he shares the gospel of Caesar, but we think he did, because that's what Paul did every time he was on trial. He went to the very top and to the very bottom, and he said, all of you need to know about Jesus. God wants all skin colors, all cultures, all social groups to hear about Jesus' resurrection. It's easy for us. It's so easy for us to read this and be like, okay, we need to go. And I'm going to get there. Yes, we do. We need to go. But remember, we are the ends of the earth. Somebody else was faithful with this message first. Right? We, it started in the Middle East, in Jerusalem, and it spread from there. We are the ones who have been blessed by actually people being faithful to this mission and going to the ends of the earth. We always like to put ourselves in the center. We're not the center. We're, we're here because other people were faithful. And how much more can we be faithful to go to the ends of the earth as well? So in terms of application, I, I want to give you three of probably the get devil's greatest ploys to trick us into limiting God's mission. He does this in a few ways, so three ways. First, he can tempt us to think that missions is only for the professionals. It's only for those specially trained, for those with degrees. But listen to the words of William Booth. I love this quote. It's better than any of my words, so I'm just going to read it. He says, not called, did you say? Not heard the call, I think you should say. Put your ear down to the Bible and hear him call you to go and pull sinners out of the fire of sin. Put your ear down to the burden and listen to their wail for help. Go stand by the gates of hell and hear them entreat you. And then look at Christ in the face, whose mercy you have professed to obey, and tell him you will join him in the march to publish his mercy to the world. In the church, we often have this idea that either you're called to ministry and missions or you're called to pass out bulletins and set up chairs. But there's got to be a middle ground, right? We are all called to be witnesses. If you are a Christian, you are a witness. You are a witness for Jesus Christ. We need to give the mission of the church back to the people of the church. That's, that's not the people up here's job. It's all of our jobs to go and tell of Jesus Christ. That's where the church actually arises and tells the whole city about Jesus Christ. That's what we're called to do, all of us. Second, and this is related, but we can be tempted to limit God's mission by thinking it's only for those who are called to go far, to the ends of the earth. Only those people are his witnesses. But that's not what this verse says. Notice where they're supposed to go first. They're supposed to go home first. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, that's near, that's home. For most of you, you are called to witness to those near to you. Because we can sometimes say, well, that's great because it's for people far away. No, it's near to you. So what does that look like? Well, for Emmaus, I have one statement for you to reflect upon. We need to be a people who both takes the church to the city and the city to the church. We need to both be a people who takes the church to the city and the city to the church. So let me explain. By taking the church to the city, I mean that many people in our city will never walk through these doors, even though it's a movie theater. They only walk through the doors to watch a movie, not to watch us, right? So we need to be a people who actually bring the church to them. Now, what does that look like? What does that look like? Well, it means just being a people that's characterized by getting to know your neighbors. Being a people who's characterized by getting to know other kids at school who need friends. 
being a people who is characterized by knowing our coworkers, inviting other moms to the park, who get to know your waiter or your grocer or your barista, Kansas City needs the light of Jesus Christ. And we can be those who bring that message to them and not just assume they'll come into the church because they might not. So you are a witness as you go out. But we also need to bring the city to the church. One of my favorite pastors in Portland told me he thinks the idea that people won't come to church is overplayed. Especially if you grew up in Christian culture, one of the things you don't want to do, maybe not, but I'll just say this, maybe the thing, one of the things you don't want to do is invite people to church. That feels like kind of old-timey, right? We don't, we don't do that anymore. <laughs> we, 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 we do more relational evangelism. We don't, we don't bring people to church. But he said one of the ways in Portland, Oregon, that his church has grown the most is he has just called his people to say, bring them to church and I'll preach the gospel. Bring them to church and I'll preach the gospel. And I think that's so true. And we as the elders of Emmaus, we pledge to you, if you bring them to church, we will preach the gospel. So invite your friends to church. Say the most, maybe what you think the most awkward thing to do ever is, you want to come to church with me? Will you please come to church with me? Why is that so awkward? I, I feel like it, it sounds awkward, but I think it's one of the best things to do. Just say, come to church, and you'll meet a community, and you'll hear the gospel, and maybe the Spirit of God will stir your heart. So bring your friends to church, and they will hear that God's mission is to renew and heal all things, and that this recreation project starts in Jesus, and he has died for our sins, and if you repent and believe, you will have life and life abundantly. And that is good news, and that's how the Spirit works. So third, we might be tempted to limit God's mission by forgetting that we're all called in some way to participate in carrying this message to the ends of the earth. We tend to emphasize either the near or far at the expense of the other. Right now, there are over 3 billion people who have not heard this message across the world. And you might say, well, what about the locals? Locals can do it. They know the culture. They know the language. Why would I go? I don't know anything about that place. But that's the point. There are no locals. They don't know. No one's brought the message to them. We need to go and tell them about this message. We have this message. We've heard this message. We've been trained in this message. We should go. And maybe God has made us, by almost every measure possible, the most wealthy generation ever to live on the face of planet Earth. And we have the resources, and maybe those resources are meant to be used to spread this gospel to all nations. So that doesn't mean all of us go, maybe that means you partner with someone who's going. And you use your resources. The Parkinson's are going. Support them. Give them money so they can go spread the fame of Jesus Christ to all nations. And if your heart is pricked, maybe the Lord is calling you to go or to partner with them in going or others that, are, that have gone out amongst us. In conclusion, the book of Acts, we began with the beginning of Acts, but I want to end with the end of Acts. The book of Acts ends in an odd way. Paul's in prison in Rome, and he awaits trial with Caesar. And Luke never tells us what happens. He just leaves Paul sitting there in house prison at the heart of the empire. He doesn't even tell us if he gets to meet Caesar. And we're all like, this is what we've been waiting for. And Luke's done. This is what he says in Acts 28, 30 through 31. These are the last verses. If you want to turn there, Acts 28, 30 through 31. It says, for two whole years, Paul stayed there in prison in Rome. 
and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Luke's concern is not what happened to Paul. It just isn't. His concern is that God's mission continues, even in prison. Actually, I would say in, in the very fact that he's in prison, the gospel goes out more. And that's what you're going to see again and again in the book of Acts. You see the persecution of the people of God actually causes the mission to go forth more. So we're going to see these two things back and forth all the time. Wow, amazing deeds. Wow, all these people saved. And then thrown into jail. And then in jail, the gospel keeps going. The gospel keeps going. Why does Luke keep telling us this? Because Acts reminds us this is God's mission. And no human being can stop it. So don't you want to join him on that? We are called to join him on this mission to spread the news of the resurrection of Jesus who also raises others from the dead. As William Booth said, will you put your ear down to the Bible and hear his call? Let's pray. Father, we do need your help in this. We, we recognize we are weak. Uh, we are fearful. And God, we need your spirit to come. We realize that we have the message of the good news, that you have given that to us, and we want your name to be honored among the nations. And so we pray that we would be a people who spread the fame of Jesus' name to all peoples, that we would be a people that present Jesus Christ as beautiful and glorious and worthy of all honor so that people might bow before him and have the life that is his, that he has gifted to us. We pray that we would be a people who go out on mission, a community on mission. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we now appropriately come to communion. And communion originally was a meal. It was a meal where you took in food. And what does food do for us? It nourishes us. It gives us power. In the same way, the meal before us here gives us nourishment, and it gives us power, to go out on mission. We come each week to feed, to eat, and drink of Jesus Christ. This bread and this wine represents Christ's blood and his body, and he was slain for us. But then, on the third day, he rose again from the grave, and he's, he wants everyone to know about that. And as Christians, we come together, and we acknowledge, and we accept Christ has died for us as we take this, and he now enlivens us to live for him. And he gives us life through this. That's the message that we have. And that's why this, this meal is also for Christians. It's for people who have said, yes, Jesus, I recognize I need you, and I want you to rule, reign, and be Lord over my life. So if you haven't been baptized, we actually ask you to wait and not take this meal with us. Because this meal is for Christians. It's for those who have said, yes, I need Jesus. But the call for you, the call for everyone, is come to him. He opens his arms wide to you and says, come, I have life, and I have life abundantly. Will you come to me? So as we take of this meal, we are nourished, and we are reminded of the power that is ours by the power of the Spirit. In Luke's Gospel, we read of Jesus' meal with his disciples, which this represents. And this is what Luke says. 
And he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this is the cup in the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. We take this meal here at Emmaus. By coming down this aisle, you get some hand sanitizer, and then you come down this row and go back to your seat up here. We start with the first row, and we come back through here. So Emmaus, come and eat and be nourished by Jesus Christ himself. Thank you for listening to audio from Emmaus KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Emmaus KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.